Hey, before we get going, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, eToro. Let's talk about trading. Maybe your MO is just stacking sats once a week, or you're one of those cowboy altcoin traders who go deep into technical analysis. I don't know. Maybe you're just a muggle and you're trying to get into this whole cyber cash thing. Maybe you actually do want to put some skin in the game, but you have no idea where to begin. Now there's one trading app for all of that. eToro. It's a trading platform and mobile app that lets you buy and sell cryptocurrency. And it's also the number one social trading platform in the world. Listeners, you might even be asking, what the hell is a social trading platform? Copy trading is a feature that lets you mirror the actions of top traders on the platform. This way, you can learn about due diligence and all the other technical things it might take months to pick up on your own just by copying the behavior of the top traders on the platform. So head over to eToro.com and get started on your portfolio today. eToro, smart crypto trading made easy. Hey, Dave Hollerith here. The World Economic Forum met in Davos last week. Now, this is a conference that brings the top business leaders across the world together in Davos, Switzerland, to hear from economists, activists, celebrities, and the world's most powerful politicians. This year, the theme was Stakeholders for a Cohesive and Sustainable World. And along these lines, President Trump delivered a speech that could basically be summarized with this clip. The American dream is back, bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. Years of economic stagnation have given way to a roaring geyser of opportunity. U.S. stock markets have soared by more than 50 percent since my election, adding more than $19 trillion to household wealth and boosting 401ks, pensions, and college savings accounts for millions of hardworking families. Despite the fact that Trump has a track record for delivering hyperbolic and sometimes allegedly false statements and speeches, all of what he's saying is true. The U.S. economy is booming right now, and currently it's in its longest expansion period in history. But a lot of people wonder, doesn't that mean we're due for a downturn? That's pretty much a common moniker. Economic recessions happen, you know, every 10 years. And if we're thinking back to the last economic recession in America, 2008 financial crisis, there's a pretty strong correlation to Bitcoin. Chancellor on brink of second bailouts for bank. That was the New York Times headline that Satoshi Nakamoto put as a note in Bitcoin's Genesis block. Now, people can argue around how much the 2008 financial crisis actually influenced Bitcoin's inception, since historically the idea of Bitcoin had been around for several decades. But there's no denying that the basis for Bitcoin's value hinges on the fact that it is sound money, meaning it cannot be manipulated by central banks. Also meaning it has enormous utility as a safe store of value during a financial crisis. So in light of that, for the next two episodes, I want to focus on another financial crisis that's happening right now. This one is very different. So, this is the national anthem of Lebanon, a country in the midst of a very unique political and economic crisis. Since October, citizens have been protesting in the streets, banks have placed restrictions and outright blocks on people trying to get their money out, and at the heart of these problems 
is what can best be described as political mismanagement and a good old-fashioned central bank Ponzi scheme. Connected to all this is the diaspora. These are Lebanese migrants and descendants who, for one reason or another, live in other parts of the world, but might still very well have family back in Lebanon. In total, there are approximately 4 million people living in Lebanon, while the Lebanese diaspora is ranged to be anywhere between 4 and 8 million worldwide. Yeah, it's big. Within the diaspora is a small contingent of educated and engaged people who are supporting those living in Lebanon by sharing information and offering solutions for how its economy could get back on track before things get even worse. They're mostly doing this through Twitter and other social media applications like Discord. Bitcoin, as well as a central bank-backed cryptocurrency, are two solutions currently being discussed. For the next two episodes, I have interviews with two members of the diaspora who currently live in the U.S., this episode mainly focuses on understanding the current Lebanese financial crisis in all its complex historical, political, and economic turmoil. My guest is Mike Azar, a financial consultant and lecturer who can walk us through how all this got started and what it might mean for the country's future. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Dave. I mean, Lebanon is a small country, so it doesn't really get too much international press, but I think it's a very interesting case. And uh, in the coming year, I think it's going to become, you know, it's going to get on a lot of people's radar screen. Well, yeah, so, I mean, just kind of starting with, like, thinking about the protests. The latest round of protests started in October, but things have been building up for, for many years. I mean, we've had basically zero economic growth for a few years now. Lebanon's kind of an interesting case because we have a huge diaspora. Uh, I mean, people here, young people, they, you know, they grow up with the expectation that they're going to emigrate to Europe or the US or Africa or Australia or Canada because there's just no opportunities here. And at the same time, we have a very well-educated society. So we actually have millions more Lebanese living outside of Lebanon than living in Lebanon. And things have been gradually getting worse uh, really since 2011. Mm-hmm. But the, but it's just happened so slowly that it took a while uh, for things to get so bad that there was a spark that, that started this latest round. And the protests aren't, you know, they're all over the country. That's what's kind of remarkable about it, yeah. is that typically you have protests that happen, you know, mainly in the capital. Historically, you've had Uh, kind of a lot of mistrust between different communities in this country. But what's interesting about these protests is that they're economically driven. So people of different communities that have historically had mistrust for one another now realize that they actually have a lot in common, that the economic situation is affecting all of them the same. And so, you know, you have uh, massive protests in Beirut and the the second largest city, Tripoli, uh, in small towns, the mountains, really just all over. And that's why it seems to people here that this this time is different. It's different than protests that have happened in the past uh, that have been concentrated in either one, you know, one community or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, the driving force of this has been something that all Lebanese are affected equally by. But real quick, so I found you through uh, digging through Twitter. You're part of like a, a you know, I would say a, a fairly small community of, um, I guess, people who are uh, part of the disapora, or so like living abroad and of Lebanese descent who have, 
who have been um, paying attention to this. Um, and I think you even have like a name now, the nerds. I mean, it all happened kind of randomly. Um, uh, so I am part of the, the diaspora, but I live in, in Beirut now. So I've, I've been there for about a year and I grew up in Lebanon, but I was raised in the U.S. Okay. Um, high school, college, and then, and then work after that. When the, the, the protest started, a lot of us were commenting on it on Twitter, were um, commenting on the economic situation, doing some economic financial analysis to explain to people what's, what's going on because there isn't that much transparency there. Uh, so a lot of people don't, you know, now people can't withdraw money from their bank accounts like they used to, their capital controls. People mm-hmm. don't really understand why that is. What's the cause of that? Why, why, why would banks implement something like that? So a lot of us just independently started tweeting about that and trying to explain the situation to people. We just kind of found each other uh, on Twitter. Um, and then people called us the nerds because we were explaining some very technical things in, in language that you know, non-economists and non-finance professionals can understand. Uh, but we're not really an organized group. We're very decentralized. Um, you know, if you follow us on Twitter, you'll see there's dozens and dozens of people that contribute based on their expertise. You know, we got people that work in banks in Lebanon, people that work um, on uh, uh, currency printing issues, people that work in oil and gas, people that work in economics. Everybody has an expertise. A lot of them live outside of Lebanon, but a lot are in Lebanon. Uh, and it, so it kind of took off because finally, you know, people were explaining these very complicated issues to, to a wider audience uh, that's kind of historically been, been ignored because, you know, there's nobody really, you know, Twitter's a good medium to do that where you can kind of reach people directly. You can explain to your average person, okay, this is why this is happening. This is where yeah. it started. This is what possibilities in the future are. Yeah, and, and can you sort of describe your your background too? Because uh, you have a you have a pretty great you're a nerd. You have a great perspective on this, and you can actually understand what's going on. So, sure. I mean, I um, I wasn't following Lebanon very closely until about a year ago. Um, I work in the U.S. Uh, my the firm that I work for is based there. Uh, we work on uh, infrastructure financing as advisors. Um, so we basically work for banks uh, as advisors uh, in, in structuring loans for power plants, you know, renewable energy projects, roads, whatever kind of infrastructure you, you can imagine. And a lot of those loans are, are to governments. So uh, part of my background is in understanding government balance sheets and balance of payments for, for countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I studied uh, finance. Uh, I have a graduate degree in finance and, and uh, economics. So that, that's, that's my background. But I've learned a lot from the other nerds who have a lot more expertise than I do on specific topics. Yeah. So it's, it's been educational for, for me as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now can you dig in and, and explain sort of the background and uh, context to the economic situation? Yeah, sure. Um, you have to go back basically to the early 90s when the Civil War ended. So Lebanon had a 15 plus year Civil War. Um, that ended in the early 90s, and then uh, the country was embarking on its reconstruction. Civil War was damaging in terms of human life, uh, but also in terms of just the infrastructure of the country. Mm -hmm. So we need a lot of investment to rebuild, rebuild Beirut, rebuild the infrastructure, rebuild the roads. And our currency had been uh, floating against the dollar and other currencies for basically the beginning of independence. We actually have a very long tradition of having a floating exchange rate. But in order to 
reduce the risk of, uh, to foreign investors. We, the, the government and the central bank decided to fix the exchange rate against the, the US dollar. So the exchange rate has been about 1,500 liras to, to the dollar. And that's basically where, where the current crisis uh, you know, finds its origin. From that point on, there was a lot of foreign investment in Lebanon to rebuild. There was a decision made to borrow in, in U.S. dollars to fund, this, to fund the government budget and to fund this reconstruction effort. We had some uh, crises in the past, but basically, you know, wealthy countries would come together uh, and, and bail Lebanon out um, with no reforms having to be given in exchange from Lebanon's side. So what that ended up doing was just kicking the can down the road. Uh, we also got a lot of help from the Gulf Arab countries who would come and make big deposits uh, into the Lebanese banking system. When you want to think of, okay, well, why did Lebanon need dollars in the first place? Um, there's a few reasons. Mm-hmm. One is that we, um, we're a big importing country. We, we don't produce a lot of goods for, for export, and we don't produce a lot of goods domestically. So we import a lot. And to to buy imported goods, you need dollars to pay for them. The government has some debt in, in U.S. dollars. That has to be paid. It has to be paid in U.S. dollars. So there's this need for dollars in, in the country. And so the central bank has always been on a, a mission to um, expand its dollar reserves to be able to meet that demand for dollars that the country has. Now, I talk about this on my, my Twitter thread, mm-hmm. where typically central banks get dollar reserves from exporters. Right? So if I'm an exporter in Lebanon, I sell my good abroad for dollars. Now I have $100. I'll go to the central bank and exchange it for the local currency because that's really what I need. Right. Right. That's what I pay in. That's what my spending currency is in. So now the central bank has $100, uh, 100 US dollars in its reserves. It can use those now to sell dollars to importers who are on the other side who need dollars to, to import goods. That's typically how, how it happens. Um, there are some other ways that central banks can get dollars as well. If I'm a big foreign investor, I want to invest in a project in Lebanon, I'll go to the central bank, sell it some dollars, get the local currency, and then use that to invest in some project inside the country. Now, Lebanon's case is different because we don't export anything, so we're not getting dollars that way. We have very few foreign investors pumping dollars into the country, so we get few dollars that way. But one thing we do have is a very large and successful uh, diaspora living abroad, right? They live in the Gulf, they live in North America, Europe, really all over the place. And, and they tend to be uh, very successful and, and, uh, and still very attached to their country. So they send money to Lebanon. They send money to support their families there. They send money and they open accounts and send money to, de- to deposit there. Uh, and the interest rates have been pretty high in Lebanese banks that Lebanese banks have offered depositors. So that's really encouraged Lebanese people abroad to send money there because you can earn five, six, seven, ten percent uh, on your savings account in Lebanon versus, you know, in the last few years, you earn one percent or, or less in the U.S. Right. So the, the depositors who are uh, typically outside of the country are, are, are sending dollars back to the, the central bank. Exactly. And that helped the central bank maintain the, the uh, fixed exchange rate. Now, in 2008, after the, uh, the global financial crisis, people had a lot of mistrust of Western banks. But Lebanon was kind of insulated from that because our banks aren't really that exposed to investments outside of the country. We have a pretty conservative banking system. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people actually ended up taking money from U.S. banks, for example, 
and sending it to Lebanese banks where they thought it was safe. So yeah. We got tens of billions of dollars flowing into the country. And basically what that did is it caused a lot of inertia in the country where we thought things are good. We got a lot of dollars. We don't need to implement any economic reforms. And when you have a fixed exchange rate, if it's fixed in a way that causes your currency to be artificially strong, what that does is that it makes your goods less competitive compared to foreign goods. So nobody yeah. wants to buy your exports anymore because they're too expensive. And foreign goods are much cheaper, uh, relatively. Consumers inside the country will import um, goods from abroad. So what you see after 2008 is that imports just stepped up. So we started importing a lot more. Our current account deficit is something like 25% of GDP, which is just really remarkable. Mm -hmm. Countries with a 6 to 10% current account deficit are in like, you know, crisis territory. We were yeah. at 25% and we were able to keep, to sustain that because we had so many dollars flowing from outside, from the, from the Lebanese diaspora outside. And then we just would gradually spend those dollars down to keep sustaining our, our, our import habit. Mm -hmm. um, eventually that stopped, you know, the global economy recovered, interest rates in the US started going back up. Oil prices came down, so the diaspora in the Gulf wasn't able to send as many dollars. Uh, the, econ the economies of the Gulf became a little bit weaker, uh, so they stopped being able to support us. Eventually, dollars stopped flowing, and, um, and the central bank had to take measures to encourage more dollars to come in, right? Instead of starting kind of a broad economic reform uh, plan where we reduce our imports, we increase our exports, we kind of try to get our economy into a sustainable um, position, what the central bank uh, and the political class did was try to encourage more dollars to come in. Let's get more de depositors to send their money to Lebanon. So they did that by jacking up interest rates. Uh -huh. So before you could get, gain 5% on your savings account in Lebanon, the central bank said to, low, to banks in the country, listen, if you get us new dollars from abroad, we'll pay 10%. And so that encouraged people to keep sending money. Um, you know, it bought us a few extra years. But when you think of the cost of that, um, now we're starting to feel it. And that's why people are out there on the street. One of the reasons is that now the cost of that, those, those steps is really starting to be felt. Let's say the central bank now, right, it has a hunger for dollars. So a bank, a local bank gets dollars from abroad and then deposit it with the, the, deposits it with the central bank, right? It's not using that money to invest in the country, to invest in projects, to extend loans. It's just giving it to the central bank, which is holding it in reserves to pay for imports. The central bank has to pay a pretty high interest rate on those dollars. Mm -hmm. But our central bank doesn't have any dollar revenue. So how is it paying interest on its you know, tens of billions of dollar deposits? It's just trying to encourage more dollar deposits you know, to pay the interest on the old dollar deposits. Now that we look at it in hindsight, it's just a very clear Ponzi scheme where once dollars stop flowing into the country, now you have these massive dollar costs, interest costs on your dollar deposits that you can't pay anymore. And then you have to have capital controls where you basically tell people you can't withdraw dollars from your bank accounts anymore because the dollars are done. We don't have any more. We need to save what few dollars we have left for critical imports like fuel, wheat, things like that to pay the, the government's external debt. Mm -hmm. 
and so and so that's where we are now. We're we're, we're down to you know less than thirty billion dollars of reserves uh, in the country against more than a hundred billion of deposits, right? So you got I, I can't remember the number, but let's say one hundred and ten billion of deposits dollar deposits in the country, right? But you only have thirty billion dollars left in the country. So there's this huge mismatch between what people are owed, the money they're owed in their bank accounts versus how much money is left in the country to be able to meet those deposits. So yeah. people can't withdraw dollars from their accounts anymore because there's no, there are very few dollars left in the country. And that's just not uh, depositors from overseas. That's anyone in the country who has a bank account. Yeah. I mean, I forgot to mention at the beginning is that we have a, a dollarized economy where you can be for goods in the country and either the local currency, the lira, or you can pay in US dollars. So it's very interchangeable. I can go open an account at a local bank in dollars, or I could tell them, convert my lira account into dollars. We're actually about 70% dollarized. So uh, deposits in the banks in the country are 70% dollars. Mostly residents. I mean, the data is not very clear. So based on what we know, it's mostly residents, but a large proportion of it is non-residents. 30 to 40 to 50% could be anybody who doesn't, doesn't live in Lebanon. Okay. Can you explain what the, the debt in this situation? So the central bank's debt is essentially the money they need to pay back to the depositors, or do they also have debt from the increased interest rates? So most of the central bank's debt is money that it owes the local banks or depositing dollars with the central bank, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the way that a regular commercial bank's debt is to its depositors, right? Because it owes them that money. Depositor comes and puts a dollar with the bank, basically lends it a dollar. The bank has to pay that dollar back eventually. It's the same relationship between the central bank and the commercial banks, where the banks went and put dollars with the central bank that they expect to get back eventually. Those dollars are are depositor dollars that depositors put with the commercial banks. A commercial bank will go and put, you know, a billion dollars with the central bank, expecting an interest rate on that. But eventually it wants to be able to get that billion dollars back because, you know, it has depositors on the other end that want their money back too. Uh, It might want to extend loans to businesses or mortgages or whatever. But now all those dollars are frozen with the central bank. So even the banks can't get their dollars back. So that's the that's the debt situation from the central bank and bank's perspective. There's also the government debt. Obviously, we have the government mm-hmm. has about thirty-five billion dollars of of U.S. dollar debt that's coming due, you know, every year from now, uh, you know, into the foreseeable future. We have a big uh, debt payment in March and April and June, and the government doesn't have dollars to pay those off either. So where does it get those dollars from? It's got to get them from that same pile of $30 billion that's with the central bank. So the way to think about it is that you have a limited pool of dollars in the country, $30 billion. And that pool has to be divided between the creditors of the central government, which want to be paid back their, their, their bonds, right? And it has to be paid back also to the local and the non-resident depositors. So that's who has a claim on that small pot of, of dollars that's left. So if you see it that way, you realize there's a big loss in the country that has to be allocated between different stakeholders. And so the question then is, who bears that cost? Do you have to tell depositors, listen, the $100,000 you had in the bank, well, now you have 50000 Sorry. Or do you tell the foreign investors that bought Lebanese government bonds, 
do you tell them, listen, uh, the government is insolvent and we have to restructure this debt. You know, we can't pay you uh, the money we owe you. We're going to have to renegotiate it and figure out what to do. So there's a lot of levers that you have to pull to figure out how does this loss get allocated between all the different groups that are, that are owed money. Yeah. That's kind of a big question in the country now. Yeah. The political situation too is that uh, currently there's not really a uh, political party in power. The prime minister stepped down. He's been uh, managing the government until somebody is found, but there's sort of an issue of trust, right? <clears throat> I mean, that's a great point. The cabinet resigned a couple months ago. We're still working on forming a new cabinet now. It might be formed today, but, but who knows? That's just what the, the press is saying at the moment. So you have this political paralysis in the country where nobody makes decisions. Mm -hmm. There's a caretaker cabinet. So the old cabinet's still supposed to be functioning as a caretaker. But even when the cabinet, before it resigned, there's still political paralysis. There's no tough decisions are being made. So the only decisions that are made is how can we kick the can down the road and avoid having to make any decisions until the future? Because nobody wants to bear the responsibility of these very difficult and painful decisions that have to be made that are going to be very costly for the taxpayer, for Lebanese citizens, for the country, for the economy for the next few years. So that's, I mean, that's the consequence of that, is that no decisions are made. And our, that $30 billion pot that I told you about is just decreasing day by day. And when that pot decreases, that means the loss increases. The pain is going to be much greater the longer we wait to start facing this, uh, this, this crisis. What's sort of the economic impact to just citizens right now? Like they, I, I know there's been tons of reports of, of uh, people not being able to actually access their bank account or there, at least there are caps on the withdrawals they can have. But um, explain present and then also what could happen if things continue this way? So the effect now um, starts with the capital controls that have been implemented unofficially in the country, where bank by bank, they've limited the amount of dollars that uh, depositors, and, you know, not just individuals, but even companies and, and anybody can withdraw from their accounts. That also means they've limited the amount of transfers you can make abroad. So if you're, a, a, you know, you own a supermarket, you want to buy some goods to stock your shelf. You can't go to the bank anymore and say, hey, listen, I have $10 million in my account. I need to transfer a million abroad to pay my deposit, to pay my, uh, the company that I'm, that I'm buying this product from. Vendor, yeah. So you, you, you see the quantity of products in supermarkets decrease. Everything is cash-based now. So that supermarket owner basically has to use what banknote cash he has to be able to buy his imports, right? Mm -hmm. So if he has some, some local currency, you know, from his sales, right? He's, he's selling products, he's collecting revenue in local currency. He needs a way to get dollars. So he's going to go to the local currency exchanger because the bank isn't doing this anymore. He has to go to the local currency exchanger and buy dollars from him. The local currency exchanger is not selling dollars for the official exchange rate anymore. He's not going to sell you a dollar for 1,500 liras. Now I think the rate is something like 2,300. So the supermarket owner has to buy dollars for 40, 50% more, and then use that, those dollars to buy his goods from abroad. When he does that, that means prices in the supermarket is gonna, are gonna go up. So prices, even for local goods, are going up because very few goods are purely local, right? Everything has some component from abroad. Even if you have a farm here, you might be importing uh, fertilizer, right? So some part of your cost of production might be from abroad. So we're starting to see um, inflation in the country. If you can't import goods, 
you may not be able to produce whatever good you produce for export. So exports actually end up going down too. When people are not able to withdraw money from their accounts, they're just gonna, they're gonna tighten their wallet, right? They're not gonna spend as much. So the economy slows down naturally because of that. GDP contracts. What happens when that happens? Employment goes up, people stop spending. So, you know, there's a whole like a uh, series of things that happen. And basically what the result is, is you have severe contraction in your GDP. You have price inflation because you import a lot of goods that now are going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. You have high unemployment. That's why it's so important for the political leadership to start implementing the reforms now, because the longer you wait, the more protracted that is going to be. And we're only just starting to feel the effects of it now. Mm -hmm. There's some um, forecast that GDP might shrink 10% in 2020. I mean, that's a huge contraction. That's going to make the problem so much harder to resolve. And it's going to, it's going to cause just a tremendous amount of, of poverty in this country. I mean, there's some studies that have been done that, estimate that about a million people will go from poverty to extreme poverty and 800,000 people from uh, you know, middle class into poverty in the next year if GDP contracts, I think, 5%. Wow. So imagine what a 10% contraction is going gonna, is gonna to do to this country and how that's going to be reflected in the protests on the street that are becoming a lot more, people are becoming a lot more, a lot angrier, you know, because yeah. they see nothing, nothing changing. Nobody is doing anything. And their economic situation is just getting worse day by day. So what's going to happen in six months when you've got just severe inflation, high unemployment, uh, and still people see just nothing changing uh, in the country? Uh, it's, I mean, it's a very scary time here. You might not have an answer for this, but so if citizens feel like they can't trust their banks or their government, are there any things you're, any, any fundamental things you're seeing people do to protect uh, their personal finances? Or are there any things you'd recommend? That's also a really good question because it's something a lot of people have been asking about. Yeah. Especially because they can't withdraw their money from the bank. So there, the question that, that, that's asked is, well, I don't have any trust in this bank anymore that I'm ever going to get my money back. So what can I do to preserve the capital that I have? What banks let you do is to write a check, right? I can write another Lebanese person a check. I just can't get cash out. So what a lot of people are doing is buying property, buying real estate. So you had this mini boom in real prices here, despite the economic contract had, because people rushed to just convert basically their deposits into land or into an apartment or something like that. But that only works when there's a seller willing to accept the money that you're giving him, which is also going to be frozen in the bank, right? Yeah. So there are very few cases that works. It works if I have like, if I owe the bank money, if I've taken out a loan, Mm -hmm. then I'm willing to get paid by a check because then I don't care that I don't have cash because I can just use my frozen, you know, bank account to repay a debt that I have to the bank. So, so I can close that debt out and I'm good. So people are trying to buy hard, hard assets, gold, you know, uh, precious metals if you can, but that's very difficult to do now because you need cash to do that. A lot of people before the capital controls were put in place were already starting to do that, um, withdrawing money from the bank, trying to buy some, some assets or sending their money abroad. But still every day there's long lines at the banks to withdraw cash. You know, even though you have the capital controls, you still are able to withdraw two to $500 a week or whatever. 
but it's just tough when you don't, you can't get your dollars out. You can't get even your local currency out. There's capital controls on those too to to keep inflation down. So you're really you're really stuck. Um, if people had known before, they, there's a lot they could do, but they were really enticed by these very high interest rates that the banks were offering. Yeah, a lot of people have their money frozen for years. You know, the banks would say freeze your money in the bank for five years, we'll offer you a high interest rate. So a lot of people can't even withdraw their money because it's, it's frozen for a few more years. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike, you don't have to answer, to answer this if you don't want to, but was any of your finances affected by this? Mine weren't because I only moved here about a year ago. So I, I haven't opened a bank account um, in Lebanon. But most of my family lives here. Mm-hmm. Um, my aunts, my cousins... My young cousins who are graduating from college and whose future is affected now, who can't go study abroad if they wanted to, who have a hard time getting a job here. My aunts who are, you know, need that money for their retirement. Uh, my grandparents who have money in the bank for their retirement. They're all very affected by it. And it's something that kind of makes this a little bit personal because, you know, when you look at it, see the mismanagement that got us here over the course of many years that was you know, was foreseeable. Um, and when you see who's really, who's really going to be affected by this, you know, if I have, if I'm the kind of guy that has $10 million in the bank, you know, I'm not really going to be affected because you know, I got money abroad. I've got businesses. I have connections with the bank. I probably get some money out. You know, I'm going to be all right. But if I'm a, you know, my grandma's a 90 year old retiree, what's she going to do? You know, her money is not accessible. Um, there's very there's basically no social safety net in this country. So if she goes to the if she has to go to the hospital now, the hospital prices everything in dollars. She had to have a surgery. She broke her shoulder a couple of months ago. She had to go to the hospital for surgery, and um, you know it was a few thousand dollars the cost of the surgery. No like uh, insurance program for for old people there, so you got to pay cash. No it's Medicare. Yeah. yeah, no Medicare. And now the hospital is not gonna exchange. You know, it's not gonna abide by the official exchange rate. But, you know, if a procedure costs $1,000, or let's make it simple, if it costs $100, now the hospital is going to tell you, listen, we can't do that exchange anymore. You owe us $250,000 now because, you know, we've got to import our medical supplies from abroad, but the cost just went up. So what does she do, you know? And you have no social, no social safety net. So, you know, basically it means you can't get treatment. You know, you're pharmaceuticals, uh, your, 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 whatever medications you're on, the prices go up. I mean, it's just such a wide effect on the most vulnerable people in the country. And it's, uh, you know, there's not really anything being done to protect at least, like, why does somebody who have $1,000 in the bank, why should, why should that person be affected by the capital controls? You know, why should you limit how much that person can withdraw? You've got to like start thinking, okay, we have this big loss and we have to allocate it between different parties, right? The least you can do is protect like the poorest 20, 30% in the country who are already have been for the last, you know, 10 years. But that's not happening. And that's causing a lot of anger on the street. And it really comes down to just economic and political mismanagement in this country. And it's interesting because, you know, we're not the only country to face an economic crisis. I mean, it happens all the time. There's a lot of countries. Now we are the only country or one of, you know, maybe there's one other country in the last 40, 50 years, that's had a combination of a banking crisis, a currency crisis, and a debt crisis all in one. You know, usually you've got one of those, or, mm-hmm. or maybe two of them. Another thing that makes Lebanon kind of unique 
but we you know we know what the solutions are. We know what what needs to be done, and you just you just have to do it. It's going to be painful, but you do it in a way where you at least protect the people that are the least able to bear the cost of it. And, yeah. You know, in a few years, hopefully, you know, you start recovering. There's a lot of interesting things that are kind of being, but they all seem to be superficial. It's not Bitcoin. It is. Uh, I, I know. I know that historically, from where we are. We've never really seen like a central bank issued cryptocurrency actually be put into into practice and, and work. So I'm definitely curious about uh, that idea. Sure. I mean, it's generally pretty new. There are very few examples of countries that have done it. I mean, I know Zimbabwe experimented with it. I'm not so familiar with uh, with how effective or not it was. I don't think it was very effective just based on what I've read. But um, I think your audience would be interested in Lebanon's case because firstly, it's a, you know, it's, it's generally a middle income country, very highly educated society, a big successful and educated diaspora abroad. So you rarely kind of come across a country with those characteristics um, and the combination of crises that it has start thinking about, um, you know, central bank digital currency. Uh, so it's going to be a really good case study to see, um, how, you know, how this can be implemented, what are the effects, um, what are the benefits and, and the costs of it. Now, there aren't too many details out there about exactly what the central bank is planning to do because, you know, you can implement a digital currency in, in a million different ways depending on what your goals are. Yeah. Unlike kind of your standard uh, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, uh, I mean, as you probably know, a central bank digital currency is still centrally controlled by central bank. Totally. Um, yeah. So it's it's not the same thing. Which there's there could definitely be problems there if the whole uh, whole point is to make a a better system if the same same group is running it. I mean, that's my thought. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you you have a digital currency, but poor monetary policy. Then what? Then really, what did you gain from doing that? If your goal is to have a currency that's independent of any kind of central centralized control um, by the government or by the central bank that could affect the value of that currency, then a central bank digital currency may not be effective if there's not really a trust in those institutions and the policies that they carry out. What a central bank digital currency will do is it'll give the, the central bank more power to control the money supply, to control prices, um, to get information about where people are spending their money to help inform their policy. Now, another thing it can do is what I was telling you before about how prices are going up uh, in, in, in Lebanon. We already have inflation that is being seen at the consumer level. And you have that inflation because you have a parallel market in the exchange rate. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the lira is losing value. Now, if you have a central bank digital currency, you can kind of mask that, right? Because you have everything controlled through the central bank, right? You, you'll, you would, as a depositor, you would exchange what money you have in, the, in, the, uh, in your bank account, your dollars that are frozen. You can exchange them for digital currency. And that be can become the new medium of exchange. What that does is that instead of seeing prices go up in the supermarkets, for example, the burden is shifted uh, to the importer. So now the importer, you know, you go to the supermarket, you buy something, you pay for it in digital currency. Now that, that supermarket still needs dollars so that it can buy goods from abroad. 
yeah. instead of going to its commercial bank or instead of going to its uh, the local currency exchanger to buy dollars, it can't do that with digital currency. It has to go to the central bank and get dollars from the central bank directly. The central bank now has a much greater say in wh- who gets dollars and who doesn't, who gets to import goods and who doesn't. So yeah. Instead of seeing prices go up in the market, you might just see goods disappearing from the supermarket, right? Because if yeah. I'm an importer and the central bank tells me, I'm not going to give you dollars to stock up uh, you know, cheese, imported cheese, uh, then I just can't import it anymore. And that's it. The, the good just disappears. So you kind of just, you mask the inflation and it takes the form of goods disappearing from the market. So, you know, that's kind of an unfortunate consequence of it. But, you know, once you have, you know, if you end up in a situation where you have massive inflation in a country, that becomes very, very hard to get under control. Yeah. Digital currency might help you get that under control. It just gives you one more policy lever to use, but it's not a solution to the fundamental problem, right? I mean, th- those solutions are, you know, take many years and it's known what those are. You just have to import less and export more. And, and how you get there is, is kind of, is where the disagreements will be. Yeah, thinking towards Bitcoin, what have you heard of people using Bitcoin in Lebanon? Um, I mean, we do have a, a Bitcoin community here. I mean, you mm-hmm. might know there's actually a big, um, Look up his name, big uh, Bitcoin. Exactly, Saifedina Amos. Yeah, yeah. He he's here in Beirut. He he teaches at a, at a school here. Yeah. So there is this culture of of kind of understanding cryptocurrencies and and Bitcoin specifically, but it doesn't really have a, a broader use. It's kind of far as I know, there's not really any transactions that happen um, in Bitcoin here. Not at any any level that is kind of uh, that you would really notice. I mean, even in the U.S., you see some places that, that accept Bitcoin. Um, but in Lebanon, you don't really see that. It really is something that is only a specific segment of the population knows about and is engaged in. But you have a lot of enthusiasm around that. People know about Bitcoin. They know about all the other cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, I don't know how, at this stage, to what extent people are seeing Bitcoin as a, kind of an asset that they can put their money in because they don't trust the banks they don't trust having deposits in the banks mm-hmm. uh, it's still a very small community but this idea that your money might not be safe in the bank uh, at least not now based on you know the way things are now until people see reforms and they see the economy coming back um, there's a lot of distrust and I think if people people have been looking to assets that they can buy historically we've been a very gold-based society Mm-hmm. People have a lot of faith in gold. So a lot of people have gold at, at home. It's kind of, it's been a primary savings vehicle for people and there's a lot of trust in it. Uh, so basically real estate and gold, but gold has, there's even more trust in, in that. So Bitcoin, not yet. People are only now starting to really start talking about it uh, more and more. But, you know, we don't, most of the population here is uh, is not really well off enough to um, or not really plugged in also enough into that world. Yeah. So it, it takes time to get there. But when you have a country facing this type of crisis in the year 2020 with access to information because of the news, because of social media, whatever, information can spread very quickly. And very quickly, people can start becoming aware of different 
uh, options they have to, to 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 put their you know to put their money into. Which is why I think it's a really interesting case study for for audience of this podcast because just it's a very unique set of events uh, where you have a country where the idea of cryptocurrency can really take hold because you have a you know um, a very well educated society with with a lot of demographic groups that that are wealthy that travel outside that have a lot of information. And you have a banking crisis where people have started to distrust their banks, um, and you have people who are, you know, experts in cryptocurrencies and their potential use um, and use case in Lebanon specifically. So really, the next year or two is going to be a very interesting example of, you know, the role of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin um, in countries that are like Lebanon. Yeah, I mean, I I'm like just beginning to think about this, and, and luckily a lot of our listeners uh, are smarter than me um, and probably have more ideas. But I, I was thinking about uh, how Bitcoin could play into the import export situation, at least for the people living abroad. Um, if they can't go through a bank to transfer money, they could do it through Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean that is that's um, because you can't transact in dollars anymore, basically internally yeah. and, ex- and externally you need some way to pay for things outside and if you can bypass the banking system here that would be something that's very valuable because then you can at least start importing things um yeah. so if you can you know send your the business you're, you're buying from bitcoin and then they send you the goods that would be good now technically how that works and what infrastructure is needed and the effect of kind of bitcoins changing price from day to day how that factors into a business's decision making in, in that regard uh, is something that you know people who are a lot more intimately familiar with Bitcoin as a transaction currency will be able to tell you. But fundamentally, having a way to do cross-border transactions outside of the banking sector at this stage in Lebanon is something that is, would be extremely uh, valuable for the country. Yeah, and primarily right now it is it is a store of value asset. People buy it and and that's their savings. It has happened significantly in, in places like Venezuela where uh you know they're in hyperinflation, but uh it it's not it's not um transitioned as much uh as a uh, means of, of of payment um at least right now. But like the volatility and all that uh is complex I think even if you're an expert to sort of understand. And that's obviously like a hurdle there too, is, uh, you know, education for everybody and like actually improving um, how you'd use it. Um, but okay, so I think my last question is just obviously this is a not an optimistic uh, story we're talking about, but has anything come out of this or maybe your experience in, 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 in uh, getting involved with uh, Lebanon's economic uh, current affairs has anything given you hope yeah i mean there are a few things like for example this group the nerds group that's come together that gives me a lot of hope because people are paying attention now they're interested in learning about things that they were not interested in in the past people are starting to figure out what got us here what policies um you know need to be changed um there's a lot more this idea that you know we need to start holding political leadership accountable and that we have you know a 
large group of Lebanese people inside and outside the country that are well-educated, willing to learn more, and willing to contribute to, you know, the recovery effort of, of the country. Learning solutions that are, you know, very cutting edge, like the use of digital currencies and crypto, um, like how, you know, we can um, completely restructure our banking system. So there's a lot of energy there. People are not hopeless and, and have kind of given up on, on the country. People are still very involved, even though they're suffering a lot, they still have a lot of hope and, and faith that the country can recover so long as we start facing this crisis and, and doing something about it. So I, I am very hopeful, actually. Uh, I think Lebanon has a, a great future. The next few years are going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very resilient society. It's a society that has a lot, of, a lot of affection for its country. You've got third-generation Lebanese from the U.S., who still cook Lebanese food and still like to come visit and still say they're Lebanese American. Yeah. Um, you know, we're all, we're all very, very connected to the place. And, uh, you know, I, I really, if you haven't been there, I, I recommend you go on a trip there because it's just such a beautiful place and people there are really amazing and, and loving. And we still have such close communities over there and, and we're, we're open to, to the outside. There's so much there that's really not worth giving up and just saying, you know what, Lebanon is done. I'm just going to move somewhere else and forget about it. Yeah, so. yeah. I'm thinking two things. I'd love to send you uh, more information on Bitcoin. I don't know if you ever look into that or if that's your your thing, but um, I'd love to share more information with you um, about how businesses use it. Um, maybe some case studies or something to just sort of to give you that as an idea um, if it seemed like something that would fit in, in these discussions you're having about um how about things people can do to to improve the economic situation um, in the country, um, and then also I definitely want you to sort of give your informa- information on air, just so that if anybody um, has any idea, anyone in our audience, they can uh, reach out to you. Uh, I guess over Twitter. Yeah, my Twitter handle is Azars Tweets. A Z A R S Tweets. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Take care. And uh, oh. Uh, what does NERD stand for? It stands for Nasty Economy Requires Drastic Solutions. We, we didn't invent it. It was just kind of um, organically uh, uh, invented on, on Twitter from people who follow us. So we, we rolled with it. We liked, the, we liked it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, I, <laughs> thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Great conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Bitcoin Magazine Podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine, and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.